Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. As we sit down and explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone. As he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with legendary announcer and new St. Louis Cardinals TV broadcaster, Chip Carey. Now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. And today on the program, I'm joined by a third generation broadcaster. We've got a little bit uh, in common. This year, he's joined in the TV broadcast for the St. Louis Cardinals, previously of the Braves, Cubs, TBS. And back in the day, he called my Mariners games. Ladies and gentlemen, Chip Carey. Chip, thanks for coming on the program. Booney, great to be with you, man. Long time no see. Uh, thrilled to be with you. We're going to have some fun. This is cool. And and we mentioned, <laughs> I mentioned off air, you know, I, I don't get to do this to anybody. It's been done to me probably more than <laughs> anyone in the history of baseball. Me as a player, you as a broadcaster, give me your, this. This is kind of fulfilling for me. Give me, <laughs> give me your take on this third generation thing, especially when you're young. I'll share mine later, but I want to hear what yeah. it was like a young Chip Carey coming up with, some iconic, you know, your father's uh, skip and, and your and your grandfather, Harry Carey. Uh, what was that like for you breaking into the business? The first thing I always thought of was, God, it's terrifying to see your future. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I didn't really think about it that way. I, I guess my situation was different than and I assume yours. Uh, I didn't know my grandfather very well. My, my grandparents divorced. My mom and dad divorced. So I didn't see my dad very often until I was an adult and out of college or in college, I should say. So it didn't affect me quite as much um, until I started getting into the business. And then, you know, the nepotism stuff and, oh, you're only here because of your grandfather or your dad. And uh, we all know where that comes from. It comes from jealousy because, look, you know, Brett, anybody that has a job of any kind in Major League Baseball, certainly I can't relate to it from a player standpoint, but from a front office standpoint, broadcaster, radio guy, radio engineer, these are coveted jobs with no heavy lifting. And that's not to say they don't have big responsibilities, but it's a glamorous job. And people would love to be able to have the situation that we had. And they're jealous of the connections that our family has made for us. Like you in a batter's box, uh, your granddad and your dad can't swing at a 97 mile an hour fastball. You have to. You've got to hit the ball. For us in the TV booth, when the red light comes on and it's time to talk and time to bring that game to life, we have to do it. Harry Carey's not going to help me. Skip Carey isn't going to help me in that moment. I have to do it myself. And obviously, with your great career, over 1,700 hits and, and all the things you accomplished and me doing this for 30 years, uh, we were able to you know, take the lessons that we learned from the people in our family, apply them, learn from them, learn from their mistakes, utilize their successes, and kind of find our own way and make our own way. And that's especially so in television where or radio for that matter, because it is such a personality-driven business. I can't go out and be a copy of Harry Carey. Thank God there was only one of them, and uh, it would be career suicide to do otherwise. So it's a long-winded way of saying it's part of the deal. It came with the territory, but I'm really proud of the fact that I've been able to put my own stamp on it and be very much my own person as I've gotten older and older and more and more experienced. You're right. And and as we get older, uh, for me anyway, you know, coming up, I remember I was 18 years old and, and I started to hear the, the drum beats of yeah. uh, the big shoes to fill this and that. And at first it was kind of flattering. Like, yeah. My dad, you know, when, when I signed, my dad was still playing and uh, you know, you start to hear the grandpa and the dad and, and that was, 
that was great. I was getting some attention. All of a sudden I get to the minor leagues and every place I go, Oh, what's it going to be like? You know, you're going to be the first, you got a chance to be the first third generation. Is there any, and, and I kind of started to resent it after a while. Now I have a great relationship with my, my father, Gramps passed years ago, but uh, I couldn't imagine having a, having a cooler relationship with a grandfather than I did. But I'll tell you, I pull it, you know, I was in that PCL and I played in Calgary and we'd pull it to, I don't know, pick a spot Phoenix to play the giants and, I'm hitting 330, and the first question is, well, the third generation, and I just kind of started to resent it. Like like you said, I screw Bob Boone and screw Ray Boone. They're not going to help me. I think right. the, o- the only thing, and maybe it was a little bit easier for me because I knew I either put up the numbers or I don't. It's not right. subjective. It's You're either a big leaguer or you're not. In your field, it had to be tough. You're right, because you had two uh, big pillars uh, that you were following. And it's like, uh, you know, I got to get out of the shadow of this and do my own thing. You have, obviously. But, um, yeah, that's what I – and then as I got old, you know, it kind of went away. You get to the big leagues, and now you've kind of – you're an established player. And all that right. stuff goes away. And now, right. as a 53-year-old man, I look – I look back and that's a part of me, you know, still to this day, when I do an interview, you're going to get the typical question. What was it like growing up in that atmosphere? First, third generation, 2001 Mariners, uh, Ichiro, you know, I'm going to get that, but I've accepted it at 53 as this is a part of my life and my journey. And now I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm proud as hell of, of my dad, my grandfather, my brother, what he accomplished in the game. And it's just a part of me. So I've accepted, but I definitely went through those, that rocky period of that bitter, young chip on my shoulder kid that yeah. was just looking out, looking out to kick the world's ass. And uh, yeah, you want to make your way and you eventually come to a point where somebody says, wow, you're pretty good, too. And that's, what, <laughs> that's right. That sort of takes That's all you want, I think. I think we're both saying it in, a, in, a, in a, a long form sentence way. All you want to do is be accepted or, or uh, disliked on your own merits. And I, that comes from just maturity, obviously. And I think we would both be remiss if we didn't say the advantages of our last name uh, were hugely helpful. Uh, I know it was in my case because uh, that's how uh, Pat Williams hired me at 24 years old with no experience to do the NBA. I got hired because Bob Neal said, hey, uh, I know you're looking for an announcer and, and uh, Chip Carey's interested. And Pat Williams thought he said, Skip. He said, I've already worked with Skip. And Bob Neal at the time, who was doing TNT basketball, said, no, 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 I'm not talking about Skip. I'm talking about his son, Chip, who's working in TV news. He just graduated from Georgia. And Pat Williams, who's a huge baseball fan, by the way, said, oh, my God, there's another one. <laughs> and so that's how the word of mouth took place. And uh, as you as you start in the business, you're looking for every advantage you can get to just get a foot on the ladder, to get a toehold. And then the rest is up to you. And that's what my dad and grandfather told me. And as you said, you either put up numbers as a player or you don't. And uh, thankfully, you had a great career. I- I'm still going in mine and hope to keep doing it for another 25 years if I can. Pat Williams. Wow. We've had him on the podcast. I'm a fan of Pat. I wrote a book and I called Pat and I said, Pat, I know you've written like 50 books. This is years ago, 10 years ago. Yeah. And he said, uh, he asked me all the questions, you know, what's your upfront, whether they pay in you, what's the back end, this and that, you know, uh, stuff I didn't know anything about. 
Right. I said, Pat, you got any suggestions for me? He said, yes, you've got to do all the publicity yourself and get as many books up front as you can so you can hand them out. And I thought, nah, they're giving me a decent bonus up front. They're going to really get behind and pump this. He was exactly right. I called him years yeah. later and I, I laughed. He goes, Booney, I'm telling you, I've written so many of these books. You were in Orlando. How was that? I, I was in Orlando at that time. That's where I lived. I lived down there at Windermere okay, uh, sure. for, from 80, from 89 and 98. Uh, you okay. did. You, you were the magic right. announcer. Yep. Uh, comp- differences between doing that basketball and the baseball thing. Well, one, there's a time clock, which thank God. <laughs> well, this year we're, we're getting that pitch clock. Anyway, there. yeah, we're good. Now, that'll be good. I uh, know it was great. Uh, look, I was 24 years old and it was kind of it kind of mirrors what Bob Costas did years ago. Uh, for your younger fans who may not realize before the NBA was all by itself, there was another league called the American Basketball Association, the San Antonio Spurs, the New Jersey Nets uh, were a couple of those teams. The Indiana Pacers was one of them as well. And one of the teams was the St. Louis Spirits. And Bob Costas was a young broadcaster out of Syracuse University, and he auditioned for the job and sent a tape to the then PR director of the club, a man by the name of Rudy Martsky, who became famous as a sports columnist and a media columnist for the USA Today newspaper. Bob Costas had no NBA, no basketball experience. Oh, I've got a ton of it. Came in, auditioned, got the job. Well, the same was true for me. I was 24, had never done the NBA. I was doing TV news, wanted to do baseball. And more importantly, just wanted to get into the professional ranks somehow, some way as a broadcaster. Pat invited me down to do a, a, a college all-star classic before the draft called the Orlando All-Star Classic. And I worked with a man named Bucky Waters, who at the time was a colleague of Billy Packer and Dick Vitale, was kind of the voice of basketball on NBC at the time. We did eight games in two days and uh, finished up the, the, the final game and uh, looked over at at Bucky Waters and said, well, what do you think? He said, man, that was terrific. Really enjoyed working with you. How long have you been doing basketball? And I kind of had a sly, skip carry sort of sly look on my face and said, well, actually, Mr. Waters, these are the first eight I've ever done. And his jaw dropped and he looked at me and started laughing and basically said, that took some cojones, kid. I said, well, do you think I passed the audition? He said, I think you're going to be fine. And two weeks later, sure enough, at 24, they hired me to do the Orlando Magic as the youngest announcer in the league. The team won 15 games the first year. I was worse than the team, had no idea what I was doing. But after about a week or so, got into the rhythm, understood how the game was played, worked hard, and uh, spent a lot of time there. And Shaq and Penny and Horace Grant went to the finals, beat Michael Jordan and all that stuff. And uh, in the infancy stages of a franchise, as a young broadcaster yourself, there's no better way to break in. You're new, they're new, everybody's learning together, and everybody's having a great time. And uh, the time in Orlando is where I met my wife. And uh, we've we had a, a, a you know wonderful time doing that, and then baseball called, and here we are. I'm watching the uh, the playoffs for the NFL right now. A lot of criticism of the announcers. Mm-hmm. For you on the baseball side, in 2023, what's the role, the main role of an announcer? I had uh, trying to think. I had Jeremy Roenick on. You know, he was uh-huh. he was he was a hockey hockey announcer. Right. And he said, my right. job is to to entertain and to educate. What's your job as a as an announcer in 2023? Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Inform and entertain. Uh, you know, it's easy to do a game booty. You know, when you're a player and it's three, two in the ninth inning, you've got second and third one out and you're grinding out that at bat as pressure packed as that is. Those are the moments you live for. And those games play themselves. Those broadcasts almost do themselves. Our job is kind of to stay out of the way. 
uh, when it's 13 to two in the fourth inning and you know you've got seven more innings of crap baseball to get through that that game you've got to find a way to keep your audience engaged your crew engaged your partner engaged and ultimately you want to make sure the sponsors stay engaged because that's when you have to be at your best uh, I've worked in places where the philosophy is just stay with the game and say ball two I've worked in other places where they say, uh, you know, when the game's bad, be good. Talk about other stuff in the game because you're still talking baseball. And I believe that that's the best way to do it. I think we have an obligation beyond just the particular club we're covering. Obviously, if I'm doing the Cardinals or the Braves, I want that team to win every single game because it makes my job easier. On the days when they're having a rough day, um, you, know, you try to couch it and, you know, make it as soft as you can. But if they suck, you got to kind of say they suck that day. That's not an indictment of the product. It's not saying the whole product stinks. It says they had a bad day or they had a bad series or a bad week. It happens to every team in the sport. Um, but you have to have the freedom to be able to branch out because a trained monkey can say ball two a hundred times during a game. It's being able to make the game come alive, tell the stories of the players, tell them how the game's supposed to be played. And luckily for me, in my new assignment, I'm going to a place where the fans know baseball. They know that I know baseball and I'm going to be allowed to talk baseball, whether it's Cardinal centric or not. So I'm looking forward to that challenge and looking forward to covering a really, really good team again, because I've been blessed in that regard for the last five or six in Atlanta. It is amazing as a player. And, and you know this now, you've been up in the booth long enough, you know, players, their tendencies as a player yeah. in between innings. You know, I'm up usually watching film, watching maybe my last at bat, uh, how he's pitching a, a teammate of mine. But we always have the sound off. And I can sure. always hear that announcer as a player. I'd be I, I'd know everything you said. And I'm kind of right. look, looking for that spot. Now, take a step back on this side of the microphone and I watch games. And still to this day, there, there are people I don't want to listen to. I'll turn the volume off because they drive me crazy, whether it's sure. whether it's the, how they speak, uh, the, just the layman product, because there's no depth to what they say. But at the same time, I appreciate Doing a game every day. That is hard. Right. I'll tell people that, you know, when they're getting on an announcer, I said, you try sitting in that booth and coming up with some new crap that, that you you're not making right. yourself sick when it's coming out of your mouth. Because you said that yesterday and you said it three days yeah. ago and five days. Yeah. Ago. It's a tough game. There, there's a there's a fine yeah. line there. Yeah. Three hours without a script. That's really what it comes down to. And you have to be quick and think on your feet. I think what makes me different than some is this. I know how hard it is to be a major league player. You know how? Because I, I, I can't do it. And I think one thing that I take a great amount of pride in is that if a guy came to the major leagues and hit 147, I don't ever say this guy was a mediocre player on the air. He made it to the major leagues. That's an incredible accomplishment. As you know, there's only been about 10,000 guys that have ever done it in the history of the game. And we're you know approaching 150 years of, of baseball being our national pastime. It's an incredibly difficult job that you guys have. And again, we take no, at least I don't take any pleasure in a guy's failures, but we have to point that out. Um, but it's, it's a challenge. It's fun. And uh, that's why I go down on the field every day. I don't know what you guys know. And frankly, I shouldn't. I'm not on the player's team. But the more informed I am about what's going on, then I can couch things in a certain way that takes some of that heat off or lets people have some perspective as to why you're struggling. Hey, Brett Boone's he's got a sore wrist on that head first slide into second base Tuesday at Yankee Stadium. It really jammed it up. He's still trying to play because these games are important and he's just trying to gut his way through four at bats. Well, that's going to tell the audience 
a lot more than you're one for your last 26 and why the hell are you in the lineup? And those kinds of relationships that I've worked hard to develop with the teams, with the managers and with the players, I think pay dividends and ultimately make me respected by the guys in uniform. Because again, as I said, I can't do what they do, but a lot of them can't do what we do either. And we try to make uh, their season, their story as compelling as possible, because quite frankly, we're all pulling or at least should be on the same rope. Yeah, I think I think from a player's and I always I always took the the stance of I get paid a lot of money to do this job. And when I'm not doing my job, I should be critiqued as long as I was critiqued and it was done in a professional way. I, I don't like the the slights yeah, and, and the and the the put downs. But if I'm if I'm if I'm the making the most money on this team and I'm in the middle of the lineup and I'm not getting my job done, well, what do I expect? I need to be yeah. criticized. That's part of the game. I know what I signed up for through right. the years. As long as someone was respectful, tell me when I stay because because I deserve it. Because I'll tell you what, when I'm carrying that ball club and, and skipping to the ballpark, I'm getting the praise. I'm getting the headlines. So right. if you want those, you got to yeah. deal with the tough times, too. So I, as long as 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 uh, announcers were respectful with me, uh, criticism is part of the game. And I think a lot more players should realize that instead of being so sensitive about it, it's, it's what you signed up for. You want to make 20 million bucks? Well, there's a, there's a price that comes with that. And, and I yeah, think I, players yeah, need true. to realize that. Yeah. Player criticism is part of the deal. It gives us no pleasure to do it. And obviously when you guys play well, it's easy to say you're playing well. I, I think what's so unique, Booney is, is how different players think than they did 20 or 30 years ago when we were younger there's such a, a more corporate mindset to how they operate because of the salaries and because of all the other outside things and the influence of social media. Uh, a criticism of players play in some quarters is considered a criticism of him as a human being. And that's not the case. We're evaluating a performance on the field. And there isn't a way that any announcer alive is going to make 0 for 26 sound good. Um, so, you know, the really good ones understand that we have a job to do. Our job is to promote the team, to highlight the successes, soft sell the, the, the defeats and try to tell their stories because ultimately in the really, really good places, the team, the players, the manager, the staff, the broadcasters are all trying to pull on the same rope and get to a common goal, which is a lot of wins, a lot of success and a lot of interest in the game. And fortunately, in most of the places I've been, that's been the case. Jump into cities. You've seen them all now. All the ballparks. <laughs> you've seen. You've seen the old ones, the new ones. You know, I was keeping up for a while, but now my son. Yeah, did you ever play there? Nah, I didn't play there. Yeah, I played there one time, and now that it's kind of a, it's a fifteen-year-old ballpark, and and I snuck in a couple. You know, I snuck in a couple games there. But favorite ballparks and cities since you began doing this. Yeah, well, I I did this last year with it. When I went to Texas, I counted them all up. I've seen fifty-one different ones. 51 different major league stadiums. Um, favorite parks, Wrigley, for obvious reasons. Uh, you know, my grandfather was there and I worked there for a number of years and enjoyed every bit of that. Uh, Fenway Park is great. I love all the old stuff. I guess I'm an old soul. I love Houston's ballpark, the retractable roof, watching Pools hit the ball off the glass off Bradledge and the playoffs was still one of the most amazing home runs I've ever seen. Um, Atlanta's new ballpark is terrific. Uh, the Cardinals ballpark with a view of the arch, which I'll get to see 81 times a year is a really, really special place. Uh, Minnesota's ballpark, Target Field, is a real gem, a real um, uh, unpolished diamond, I think, if you'll pardon the pun. 
And if you really want to see something amazing, go down and see the Texas Rangers new ballpark in Arlington. It is enormous. And it is right next to uh, Globe Life Field, which is still being used for soccer games. I actually got in uh, into the ballpark before the game and walked up to the upper deck in center field and almost barfed. It was that high above the field. I said, this is not for me. It's like the size of six aircraft hangars uh, in the middle of Arlington, Texas, down the street from Jerry World. So off the top of my head, Booney, those are a few of my favorites. And um, uh, you know, we're lucky to get to work in such great palaces and see great players do great things. Cracks me up the Atlanta, the new ballpark. I've heard it's great. But I'm thinking when I broke, love when I, when there. you'd love hitting there, right center stroke. You'd hit about 30 home runs. <laughs> you'd, have, you'd have a great time there. As I came up with the old launching pad, you know, they, yep. they tore that down, went into the, the new stadium. And all of a sudden there's a new new stadium. I'm going, it seemed like I broke in right at the beginning of the, uh, you know, uh, of Atlanta's new ballpark. 99, I played there. And when I heard they were tearing it down, I'm like, that's not an old stadium. That's brand new. But really, it was 25 years old, whatever it was going into the new stadium. It, it's just interesting how these venues have changed. And, and now and these places we go to, I mean, every place is a cathedral, you know, with a couple exceptions. Oakland, Tampa Bay, yeah. you throw those yeah. out. I mean, all these new stadiums, you know, I, be, I remember back when when uh, Camden Yards was just absolute state of the art uh, Coors Field was unbelievable. It was brand new. Now these are old venues. All the new ones are coming right. in. And it, I think it's nothing but good for the game, good for the fan coming, and, and obviously great for the players. Yeah, I think what's happened is baseball is finally understanding that today's consumer wants something more than the game experience for the price of their ticket. Uh, I call it the Disneyification of our sport. Um, when you make an emotional and financial investment to come to Atlanta, say, and you drive two hours from Nashville and you park your car and you want to go get something to eat, well, you want to have a restaurant close by. You don't have to go and leave and park and try to pay for parking twice, all that silliness. So the Braves and the Cardinals, for that matter, with Ballpark Village in St. Louis and the Battery in Atlanta have created entertainment districts where fans can come in the morning, have lunch, walk around, play games, go to a movie, go to the ballpark, and it's one-stop shopping. The Braves have most of the, uh, if not all of the income coming in from that, which goes straight to the bottom line. And you create an atmosphere where you have a 365-day-a-year place where people can go and be entertained. And someone told me last year, who I trust in, uh, very, very well, they said the battery in Atlanta makes more money than the ball club does. And so for the revenue streams that these things are generating, that's why you're seeing that trend all around baseball. You mentioned Baltimore. They had an announcement today that the city and the state and the Orioles are talking about a multi-million dollar rehabilitation of the Camden Yards area to try to make it uh, more of a destination for more than just baseball games. So you're right. Everybody reaps the rewards of that. And when you have a, a captive audience like Disney does and you can reap the financial rewards of that, well, the players are going to benefit. We're all going to benefit. So certainly in Atlanta, it's been a tremendous success. Yeah, as athletes, you know, I, I laugh because, you know, we're serious. And, yeah, I'm a baseball player. But at the end of the day, with, with the, in the big picture, it is a corporate world. Yeah. The players are entertainers. It's entertainment. It's no different than going to a movie. Of course, you're going to have your hardcore fans. It doesn't matter what venue. If their team's playing there, they're going to be there. But if you're going to captivate a large audience, you're right. They they want the full – when they're whipping out 100 bucks, 200 bucks for a ticket, they want the full experience when they pull up. Yeah, and they should. And they should want that. And ultimately, that desire and that demand 
uh, ultimately creates a, a better product. It makes the teams do better. It makes the marketing people do better. It makes the restaurants do better because if the food's not good or they have bad service, they're not going to go back. So look, it's, it, it, it really is true. I don't want to call it trickle down economics, but I call it trickle up economics. There's demand, there's supply, and the teams in the, the leagues are finally starting to realize and, and be able to capture ways to uh, satisfy that demand with supply. And out of the post-COVID world, to do that on such a short uh, a bit of notice, 18, 20 months or so, is, is really remarkable. And I think baseball should be and is proud of that. You grew up in Chester, Chesterfield, Missouri, Parkway West High School. You went to the University of Georgia. Uh, then your magic years. Back to the family theme. Um, I got to play one year with Aaron, uh, 1998. Yep. He played third base. I played second. I look back at those times, special, obviously very special. I missed my dad by one year. I mean, that would have oh. been, that would have yeah. been unbelievable. And I remember I was in camp. My dad's last camp was the Mariners in 1990. That was the year I signed and I was in minor league camp. And I remember getting a phone call from the GM at the time. And he said, Brett, we want to uh, bring you up for a big league game and, and, you know, play with your dad. Well, I kind of immediately felt a little bit uncomfortable and I called my dad and I said, dad, what do you think about this? And he said, but this is your call. And I said, I just don't feel right. I said, I want to get called to the big leagues when I've earned the right to get called to the big leagues. I don't want some circus act. Oh, Brett gets to play in a spring training game with his dad. You know, the Griffies did it, but the Griffies did it legitimately. And I didn't want to kind of half-ass it and, and pull that, um, but I look back and I'm like, well, if, you know, if I could have just been a little, little more like Griffey and got there a little quicker, I could have played with dad. That would have been interesting. I got to play with Aaron. Uh, I think at the time, neither one of us really appreciated it. Uh, Aaron was just getting his, you know, cutting his teeth. I had been there for four or five years and it, it was cool to, to have my brother on the road. You know, we had different little guys we hung with. He, he hung with the younger players. I kind of hung with the older players. But it was nice on an off day to get to have have lunch with Aaron. But I'll tell you, when that when the bell rang and that national anthem was over, it was my third. That was my third baseman. You better get me the feed on time at second. That's all we cared about. We were teammates. Right. Looking right. back, it was special. But I think I could have if I was in the moment a little bit more, which you never are when when you're 26 years old. Your your hair's on fire. You're just trying to do good. You're just trying to, you know, win a game, get some hits. So I don't think we appreciate it. You went to the uh, you started off at the Seattle Mariners, 1993. And and I'll tell you, I was going over this and I'm like, yes, Chip was there. But I was such I, I was in that mindset of I don't remember those early days because I had so much stress and anxiety. I just wanted to prove to Lou Pinella that I was a big ligger and nothing yeah. else mattered. It's like I had those those uh, noise canceling headphones on when I got to the ballpark. I didn't know what was going on. I just wanted to get some hits. Um, you were there in those early days. Give me a little uh, a little Seattle story of your time there. Oh, it was great. Uh, I was fortunate enough to work with a guy that's one of my second fathers, and that's Dave Niehaus. Um, you, you, you know, awesome, about awesome, Dave. Dave uh, what an awesome guy. He, I mean, he just was beyond awesome. And uh, I got the job there because I went out and met with Randy Adamack and interviewed for the job. I didn't know if I wanted to be in Seattle. It was a long way from home. And uh, they called Dave, and Dave said, hire him. And they said, why? He said, because he reminds me of a young me which was quite the compliment, um, obviously. But at that time, you know, it was Lou Pinella, and he was trying to do a couple of things. One, 
you remember the Mariners at that time, they had not been very good, but they were loaded with good young talent. Um, Roger Youngward, uh, um, uh, Lee Pelicudis, and Woody Woodward really held their powder together, and they had some terrific players. Richie Amaral, Tino Martinez, Dan Wilson was coming, Blowers, Edgar Martinez, Omar Vizquel. They went out and got Eric Anthony, Jay Buhner, uh, Jr., of course, Randy Johnson, Chris Bazio, Dave Fleming, uh, Eric Hansen. That was the club that that started to believe in itself. And what Lou did on a baseball standpoint was he was able to mold these guys and demand excellence from them and teach them how to win. They were good players individually, but they didn't know how to win together. And they started to do that. Secondly, you might remember at the time, the Mariners were, uh, shall we say, on uneven financial footing. The year I got there, uh, there was a season ticket push because the 92 season had gone so poorly. And one of the headline um, uh, ads for season tickets was a picture of Ken Griffey Jr. standing, sort of leaning on a bat. And the headline in the newspaper in the Seattle PI was, after all, it could have been worse. And it's a picture of Ken Griffey Jr. smiling and wearing a Tampa Bay uniform. <laughs> Remember, because the Mariners were thought to be going to Tropicana Field. They were on the block. They were not going to stay in the Pacific Northwest. And so that was the second thing Lou really helped change in Seattle. And I'll go to my grave saying this. The force of his personality, molding that team, the entertainment he had when he kicked dirt and throw bases and, and throw his hat screaming at umpires, it really re-energized a sleeping fan base that wanted to believe in the Mariners and wanted to be known as a great baseball town, which it was. And when they started to win, as you know, Booney, um, they come out. They love it. I mean, this year, that place, Safeco Field, was rocking when the Braves came in. Um, and so that that 93 season was really, I think, the watershed year for them. They got the vote uh, on the new stadium. It passed eventually. The Mariners uh, you know, went to 94, 95. Had a great year, finally beat the Yankees, advanced in the playoffs. And the rest, they say, is history as far as the demand for excellence in Seattle baseball is concerned. So hanging around Lou, learning about his peccadillos. And there were many. He's a great guy, one of the funniest people I've ever been around. Watching Junior blossom, Jay Buhner was just beyond awesome to me. Even Randy Johnson, who could be kind of curmudgeonly and crusty, was, was a good dude. That was really a fun, fun year because I was far away from home. I was learning about a new league as a National League guy, and I was learning with a guy who was on his way to the Hall of Fame and taught me a different way that sort of mimicked what my dad and my granddad did. And uh, I loved every minute of it. If I, uh, if I could have made it work, I, I think I would have enjoyed staying there. But quite obviously with Dave and Rick Riz and you know uh, uh, Aaron Goldsmith, you guys are in really good shape up there in Seattle. So uh, count your blessings. It's a special place still for me and my family. It is a special place. You know, early 2000s, I came back to Seattle and and I saw what you're talking about. I mean, when that if you win there, that those fans yeah. will come out. And it's yep. amazing because for years, you know, when I retired, I, you know, I'd come back to once every year or once every other year, throw out a first pitch and and just talking to the fans and talking to the people that hadn't that haven't seen what it was like in the early 2000s because of that long, you know, until last year, what was it? 21 years. They didn't go to the playoffs. I said, right. I'm telling you, when this town wins, this city is electric. It really is. It was great to see him kind of break out of that last year. And I think they're even going to be better. They've 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 kind of haven't spent that much money this offseason. But they've got a young pitching staff. They've got four studs. And I think the two younger guys, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how they develop with one more year under their under their belt as far as experience. I'm really looking forward to to the Mariners. And I think they have a chance to be a playoff team for at least the near future. So I'm, yeah, ex it, I'm excited about that. 
Yeah, it's like the Braves. You know, you, when you start playing, you figure out, do I belong as a major leaguer, right? Do I, do I belong here? And then you find out, okay, I belong here. Now, what is my role? Am I going to be a utility guy? Am I going to play every day? Then you find out, okay, I can be an everyday player. And then it's, okay, what's my ceiling? Am I I'm going to be major league average or am I going to be a perennial all-star? And then, you know, am I going to be a superstar and a Hall of Famer? The same path and trajectory is true for the franchises. Uh, six years ago, nobody thought the Atlanta Braves were ready to win the division when they did or go to the playoffs when they did, but they got there. And the incremental step they took was, hey, we're good. Now we know we're good. And when you know, and you know this, Booney, as a player, when you have a young team that knows it's good and now knows what it takes to show the world that they're good, that is a very, very dangerous and exciting animal. And I think that's what served the Braves so well the last five or six years, what I think is going to serve the Cardinals so well. And I truly, truly believe what's going to serve Seattle very well. I was very impressed with that team when I saw them last year. And uh, you're right, in that Western division, you've got a dogfight on your hands with the Astros, obviously. But uh, don't count out the Mariners by any stretch. I think they've got a really good team, a really good young core. And you're right, they're going to be good for a long time. Speaking of the Braves, you know, I, I obviously I lived through the 90s. I got to play for them for one year. I remember when I got traded to the Braves, the, the, everybody I talked to, you know, got current big leaguers. The common theme was, oh, you're going to get a chance to go to the playoffs in the World Series. And that was yeah. just kind of in the 90s. They created that atmosphere as you come to Atlanta. Yeah, of that's a foregone conclusion that we're going to win the division. It's are we going to win the World Series this year? It was a different different type of experience my first spring training there than I than I ever had in any of my years in the big leagues. Um, but we had Snitger on recently and he talked about the resurgence of the Braves and the job he's done. Here's a guy uh, I believe signed with the Atlanta Braves in the 70s as a player and he is the current skipper. And, and it was a real unique situation. I said, you know, Brian, not too many people <laughs> stay in the same organization from 1977 to current. And finally, at the end, and he told me, he said, Booney, the last thing I thought I'd given up on my on my managing career years, years ago, as far as the big league level. And he said, when I got offered the job, it was a surprise to me. And and look what they've done. They've won four or five division titles under him. Uh, it's really cool to see Atlanta uh, kind of reliving those 90s years. And, and Snitker was interesting because he lived the 90s years. He was a minor league coach then he was a big league coach but he's seen it all and it's cool that story to me was really cool how it how it how it's ending for him it's like he man you talk about putting in the legwork with an organization and finally being rewarded he won a world series and and you were there for that uh a couple years ago uh really cool uh seeing that and talking to him yeah, he was the perfect guy to help clean up the John Hart, John Coppolella, um fiasco in Atlanta. He did that. Uh, he was the perfect guy to lead us back into the Braves' way to the extent that he could. Look, Bobby Cox is a Hall of Fame manager, Hall of Fame person, and he was responsible for so much of what Atlanta did, along with Paul Snyder. Uh, and so many others in the Braves organization who drafted and developed and had a system that that could really evaluate and get young talent to the major leagues. Um, but Brian's a, you know, he's a Midwestern guy. He's a no-nonsense guy, but he understands what his role is, and he truly is a manager. He lets the players play. The locker room is their domain. The lineup card is his. And uh, the players know their role. They know what's expected of them. And it's little things. You know, when you when you are shagging balls in the outfield and you don't want to wear your sunglasses, don't cover the A with the sunglasses. That's a Bobby Cox thing. And the subtle message of that is this A means something. This this logo, this Braves way, this cap, it's it's 
you know, something you you embrace, you don't take for granted because he certainly never did. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's it's a, one of those Cinderella stories that there ought to be a movie made about it because he was the last guy anybody thought would have gotten the job uh, when Freddie Gonzalez was uh, was uh, dismissed in in 2000. Hell, when was it? 2015. But here we are, seven years later, Brian Snitker has a World Series title, a chance to win another one, a contract that's going to carry him through three more years to his age 70 season, if he so chooses. His wife has beaten cancer. His son is a hitting coach for the Astros. He won a World Series. And Brian's got three gorgeous grandchildren who he adores and gets to see virtually every day during the baseball season. When you talk about a guy who will be the first in line to tell you he's blessed, he's that guy. And as genuine as he comes across when you read about him or see him do interviews, that's Brian Snitker. He's a great, great human being, and I'm proud to call him a friend. Yeah, and he he came. He's he's such a humble guy, and and that's probably because of the the ebb and flows that he's gone through his career. I, when I was going to have Brian on the show, I, I talked to a good friend of mine, one of my favorite teammates uh, all time, Walt Weiss. He just he just kind of sent me a text, and he goes, "Good man." And and I know when Walt says that, what that means, and he definitely didn't disappoint when he came on the program. Um, 98 to 2004 and although it was brief you did step into the booth with with your grandpa uh harry carey i mean i look back now and and it's such a it's such a funny time obviously he announced my games when i came to wrigley field i don't know if i got to meet him but he's one of those guys. He, you break the glass when when someone like that's born. You mentioned Lou Pinella, who's my favorite manager of all time. I mean, Lou, right. you, we could go on and on. You've got probably a, a lot of stories. I've got a ton of stories about Lou. But uh, he's one of the Lou's one of those guys, and I'm sure you'll agree. When he was born, they broke the mold. There is not another Lou Pinella. Who knows in our lifetime if we'll ever see another <laughs> Lou Pinella? But I but I look at Harry as one of those guys. There's not another Harry Carey. Maybe one day there will be, but not just share a little bit about being in the booth, sharing the booth with your grandfather. Yeah, it only happened once. It happened in 1989 when I was uh, with with the with the Braves. Um, uh, <laughs> that was the real tragedy for our family. You know, again, the three generation thing, as I've said before, I didn't know Harry very well. Um, and I was hired to work with him in 98. Um, he. he had been in ill health. He was going to cut his schedule back and I was going to do the road games with the exception of a couple trips to St. Louis or maybe New York or something like that. But I was going to do pre and post middle three at home and all nine innings on the road because they wanted to find his replacement. Josh Lewin had tried to do that. WGN decided to move in a different direction and they hired me. Uh, so I was getting ready for spring training. It was right around this time in, uh, in 1998 and he died. So all those stories, all those family stories, all that family history that I was hoping to catch up on and come full circle on, I never got to do. I mean, as a baseball guy, Booney, you can appreciate this. He saw every at bat of Stan Musial's career. He saw Jackie Robinson play in his first week in the major leagues with the Brooklyn Dodgers. He got to go to Ebbets Field. He rode the trains out of Union Station in St. Louis. Um, you know, he, he spanned World War II to, you know, Ronald Reagan's presidency behind the microphone. And he was an orphan. He didn't know his dad. His dad left the family when he was young. His mother died shortly after he was born. He was raised by uh, his mother's sister in uh, South St. Louis. And he was just a guy that through the force of his personality made himself into 
uh, success. I mean, he truly is the American success story in that it's, it's a matter of how hard you're willing to work to get where you want and what you're willing to give up. And he did that. Um, so from a family perspective, horrible that uh, I didn't get to work with him because I think he and I were both really looking forward to that. And the the beneficiary of those wonderful stories, Tom Brenneman, who was his partner for so many years with the Cubs and did a great job. Uh, those are all things that, um, you know, I really wish that I could have had the the joy of experiencing personally. But um, every time I, I'm in a, in Chicago or every time I go to a big league ballpark and meet a fan, they say, boy, I remember your grandfather. And once he said this and this and this, and we inevitably laugh because it's so hairy. Um, but that's how those of us who love the game stay immortal because people don't forget when you're a good dude and when you do good work and you make people smile when they say your name, I can't think of a better epitaph than that. And Harry certainly was able to do that. It's amazing. I was watching some old clips of, uh, and I wasn't looking for this at all, but I was watching some old St. Louis clips and there's Harry the booth that yeah. you're going into. He was, he, people don't know. They, they know him as, as Cubs, but he, right. he was in St. Louis for a while too, as so many people have, have, uh, gone to that booth that you're headed to uh so many guys that are so big and important to this game braves from 2005 to 2022 a lot of work with tbs um before i get let you get get going i wanted to just talk a little bit about we we touched on it earlier about the pitch clock and and how baseball is is unique in that way there's not a time limit there's not a time frame i always uh, i would always say that and as a player, hey, there's no time clock here. We can go as long as we want. You know, whatever whatever the case may be, whether it's a pitching change, this, that. We're starting to change that a little bit. You know, they always they want to move this game along. I want your take as as uh, as a broadcaster on the bigger bases. I'll tell you what, I just got back from uh, fantasy camp with the Padres. And I was coaching third base and, you know, <laughs> trying to egg my team along and I look down, they have the bases in already. And I'm looking at it. And I'm going, this looks like a Pee Wee Herman base, you know, like that oversized, ridiculous thing that I've never seen before. I don't know how, how, uh, how much of a difference that's going to make. I, I look as an offensive player and think, well, that's a benefit for me. I'm closer to the base, you know, going from first to second, stealing a base. I'm, I'm a little bit closer. So maybe that's a difference in out and safe. Want a quick take from you on the bigger bases, the pitch clocks. And I think in AAA this year, they're going to do that robo uh, umpire experiment. I personally uh, am uh, – I look at the umpire, they're getting so much criticism. I think it's a lot to do with that stupid white box that they put uh, on the telecast. And I always say that's for entertainment value. That's not the actual strike zone. So the guys today are as critiqued as they've ever been because of the super slow-mo, all that. I'm a little bit of a defender of the umpires nowadays, thinking it's a lot harder than it looks on TV to call that perfect strike zone. But with the technology today, uh, the criticism is going to be there. Quick take from you on the pitch clocks, the robo umps. And if you want, for, for fodder purposes, you could talk about the stupid bases. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. All right. Pitch clock. Uh, I'm in favor of it. I don't think it's time of game. It's pace of game. There's too much dead time in the game. We live in a world where uh, Twitter and TikTok and Instagram and people looking at their phone every five seconds to be entertained. Uh, we are in the economic and entertainment fight for our lives as a sport. And if we can get more action in the game, I'm all for it. There's too much dead time. Get in the box, stay in the box, get the ball, throw the ball. 
Uh, there's way too much pacing and pawing around and wasted time on that. That's number one. Number two, uh, bigger bases. Theoretically, it's going to increase stolen base attempts. You know, how many guys are out bang, bang by an eyelash or a fingertip at the bag? Maybe you'll see more of that, which means the analytics people will have to recalibrate their risk versus reward of that. I grew up in St. Louis watching Vince Coleman and Willie McGee steal 100 bases every year. I love that cat and mouse game between pitcher and catcher. It makes the, uh, the importance of defense even stronger. So I'm all for that. Uh, you know, the bigger bases, uh, you know, that's going to be part of it. We'll, we'll see if it works. Um, let's see. What was the other one? Uh, I'm Robo ups. Not a fan of that. Uh, I think you're 100% right. Uh, one of the Quinn Wolcott, I think, had a perfect game in the playoffs. So from, from here on out, everyone can say, well, he's perfect now. He doesn't have to get better because you can't do any better than that. Uh, there was a time where you used to have to scout the umpire strike zone and each one had their own to a degree. That is also part of the legend and lore of the game. Um, I, I, I'm not a fan of that particular aspect of it. Um, but look, you know, Change is inevitable in the game. Uh, the one that I really get kind of crazy about is the shifting. I think you should be able to play your defense any way you want to play it. It's up to the hitter to utilize the opposite field. If they play it a pull, hit it the other way. They did that in the game for 100 years. But now with the launch angle philosophy and the three true outcome philosophy in our sport, it's hit home runs or don't get paid. So I understand it from a player's perspective. But that's not baseball. Uh, you know, if you hit the ball the other way, you know, that's not foul territory over there. And for so many years, it's been considered that by the guys that just want to lift and separate all the time. So that aside, I'm not the conscience of baseball. Uh, I am not uh, in any way, shape or form perfect on how I uh, react to things. I was anti-DH as a National League guy. I hated it, didn't despised it. Uh, didn't like the lack of strategy, but if you'd watch some guys like Mike Fulton, hit Booney, you'd throw up and say, God, we need a DH. Two years ago, uh, I hope that that uh, somewhere down the road, maybe as this continues and we try to reemphasize the importance of starting pitching, that we'll do the Jason Stark double hook idea. Starting pitching is as long as you're starting pitchers in the game, you get a DH. The minute he comes out, yank him. You got to use a pinch hitter, and that will make teams have better benches. It'll utilize all 26 players. And maybe it'll make a manager think twice about yanking a guy after 86 pitches in the in the fourth inning or the fifth inning of a, a five to two game. But again, my job is to describe what they do and then evaluate what I like or don't like. But change is inevitable. It's coming and adapt or die, I say. And hopefully these changes will create an even uh, more exciting and deeper uh, uh, group of of baseball fans who will grow up and maybe have third generations of their own like you and me. We had Tim Cheetah on recently, the, the veteran umpire. I, yeah. I believe he retired in about 2015, and I, I got to the crux of it with him about umpiring and, and today, and I was really interested. And he said, Booney, behind the scenes, I watched these umpires and how they train, the strike zone, they're, they're taught and what to call. And he said to me, and this isn't this is rare for somebody who's retired. You know, usually they like to go back to their time and the great umpires of their generation. He said, the guys today, Booney, technically – are better than they've ever been. And that's nope. coming from a guy yeah. uh, that started in probably the 80s. To, yeah. to say that, that holds a lot of water with me. That's why I defend the umpires today. And I said, it's not what it seems. You can do all this entertainment stuff with the white, with the white box and all that stuff. But Tim Cheetah just told me who I trust. They're better than they've ever been today. So I, I'm on the side uh, of the just- umpires. Yeah, and there's so much more scrutiny. And, and, and again, people like us are on TV. Oh, how did he miss that call? Well, you know, that's what they're asking them to do. Um, 
you know, as I said before, Tom Hallion's one of 10 veteran guys that retired. I'm going to miss watching him uh, pretend he's a chiropractor when he rings a guy up when he's when it's strike free. I, <laughs> I miss that person. I miss uh, Paul Runge. I miss Dutch Renard. I miss Harry Wendelstead. Those guys were legendary people in the game. Joe West, even love him or hate him. The guy had personality and he made for great theater. Uh, I hope that these guys, I hope everybody who wears a uniform would be an umpire, uh, manager, player is allowed to express themselves in whatever way they want that, again, attracts eyeballs. We are, as you said so uh, appropriately, in the entertainment business. And anything that is done classily that brings attention positively to our game is a good thing. I don't want robots determining the, the outcome of a big game. I want human beings because that's what people talk about around the water cooler. And some of the replays that we're seeing in the sport and have been for many years just suck the life out of the game, suck the soul out of the game. I want to drive down the road with a 67 Camaro with a 396 engine, burning raw fuel and raw exhaust. I don't want to live in a hermetically sealed vehicle going down the street in a quest of perfection. That's not what I'm about. It's a tough game played by tough men with human foibles and frailties. And those are the things we see and celebrate. And that's what makes our game the greatest ever. I, I can't top that. That's very well said. Um, as far as the booth, you, you mentioned Kneehouse. Uh, I got a chance to to be with Dave for years. What what a great guy! You, you've you've shared the booth with a lot of of uh, great men. You know, we we mentioned your grandfather. Only it, it was shorter than I even thought it was. That one game in '89. But Steve Stone, <laughs> Joe Simpson, uh, your dad, Donnie Sutton, who we lost uh, recently. You're you're moving on to 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 work with the great John Rooney and, and that booth starting with your grandfather, but Mike Shannon and, and Jack Buck have, have been in that booth in, in St. Louis. You're headed there. Uh, what are you thinking about? Uh, you're just getting ready to head down to Jupiter. What's going through your mind? Don't screw it up. <laughs> Don't screw it up. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, it's humbling. It's a, it's a great honor. Uh, you know, I've said it before, um, and I may have said it before earlier today, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants and the booth in Atlanta, Ernie Johnson Sr. got things started in the broadcast booth there as a former player and a member of the 57 world champion Milwaukee Braves. My dad, Pete Van Weeren, Don Sutton, Joe Simpson. Now Jeff Francoeur is there uh, in St. Louis, Jack Buck, Ron Jacober, Jay Randolph, uh, Bob Starr. I mean, there have been so many tremendous people who um, have have worked behind the microphone in those two places. Steve Stone, you mentioned him in Chicago, Jack Brickhouse, all Hall of Fame people and, and, and broadcasters um, to be able to be mentioned in the same sentence, much less the same chapter as people like that at this stage of my life and career is a great honor. And I, I, I don't uh, I don't um, sell that short by any stretch of the imagination. I know how hard these jobs are. I know how hard they are to get and keep. And I know the civic duty and responsibility that teams like the St. Louis Cardinals have in that part of our country. And so uh, that's attractive to me. I, I, I love it. I grew up there. I understand the culture. And, uh, you know, I'm just incredibly honored that the DeWitt family saw it fit that I was worthy of representing them and their brand. And, and uh, uh, as you said, spring training's right around the corner. February 25th is our aim and the the cramming has begun. So uh, it's going to be fun. It's going to be exciting. And the best thing of all is I'm going to have a good team. And for a broadcaster of any vintage, going to a new place and starting a new assignment, having a good team to, to cover is the best entree you could possibly have. And I'm grateful for that. 
Well, Chip, I appreciate you coming on. It was great catching up with you. Uh, great career uh, to this point. And, and now you're going to, to one of the biggest booths of all. I wish you all the best. I'll be checking out. We'll catch up down the road sometime. And what we do each and every Boone podcast at the end of the podcast is we kick it back to the voice of the podcast. And that voice is Dan Levy. Dan? That's going to wrap it up for the Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, and I'm the technical director, producer, and voice of the Boone Podcast. The executive producer is Rich Herrera. The digital content for the Boone Podcast is provided by Liz Landry. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors and friends, and make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, please give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boone Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. Thanks for listening.